Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Deceptively Fast Podcast. I am very excited about today's episode. Today is the first time that I think I genuinely got the format and the style of the podcast I want Uh, And that includes our weekly visits with Sean Pendergast and Michael Lombardi. But also, we'll we'll start out with an interview with my old teammate, Owen Daniels. He's a two-time Pro Bowler. He is an all-rookie class of 2006 tight end. Uh, He won a Super Bowl. He won a high school state championship when we talk about all of that. Plus, his training as a meteorologist just in college and uh, his his son's battle with cancer. And it's some really, really good deep stuff. And it's the kind of conversation – that I had with teammates while I was playing, but I never got to have with a lot of these guys like Owen Daniels because he was a younger guy. I was an older guy, but really enjoyed my conversation with him. I'll put him up first, and then we have Sean Pendergast write it about the one-hour mark, and then Michael Lombardi will be at one hour and 25 minutes. Please enjoy, and please Give me a five-star rating on iTunes. Subscribe on Radio.com. The corporate folks love when you go to Radio.com, you subscribe to the podcast, you give them a like, all that stuff. It's a really good app, and it's very smooth, and you can listen to all of our programming on my local radio station, Sports Radio 610. Let's do this. All right, Owen Daniels, thanks for coming hey. up, man. Hell yeah, man. You've never done a podcast before. No, it's my first one. I feel, you know what? I forget that you're not that young. I, <laughs> I still, like, in my no, mind, I, in my mind, you're always, oh, you're a rookie, and I'm a 10th year guy, and I'm old, oh, and you're yeah, young. Yeah. 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 But you're, you're kind of you're kind of old. <laughs> no, I am, yeah. How old are you? I'm 30, I'm 43. Okay. Yeah, I'm 35. I'll be 36. Yeah, you're not old. Month. You're not yeah. old. You're still 36 is like the new 32, at least. Yeah, I'm trying to trying to make the my the new uh, let's see yeah new thirty maybe <laughs> well set it back five years at least you know where I where I realized like oh yeah Owen's got some years on him was when I was looking at your your high school college or high school football career and you won the state championship with Naperville in Illinois yeah. in 1999 99 state champs. Yeah, fourteen. No, six A. I've got a, six A state chance. Baby. I've got a theory. I've got a theory about that. You're the high school at a. That's a big high school, right? Yeah, big you're, high school. You're the high school quarterback at a big school that won the state championship. Yeah. I don't know when I try to think back on football if it felt any bigger in the NFL than it did when I was in high school. Just because, like in high school, it's your whole universe. Oh, man. And that so like, what's yeah. a state championship feel like? Now, obviously, in the Super Bowl, you've got the whole world watching and everything. But in terms of the emotion and everything, did it feel that much different Honest, to win a Super Bowl? Honestly, um, <laughs> this is bad. Uh, you bring it's funny you bring it up because um, those two championships and my only championships, but those two are so comparable in terms of the feel and like even the high school one felt like almost maybe it meant a little bit more yeah because at that time it was like 
uh, you're, you know, with with all your buddies, and it's high school, and it's 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 huge. You've only been alive seventeen years. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. our you know our our school had never done that before, so it was, it was all these things. There was a lot of like anticipation for that year, but man, the, the just the feeling of like you know back then, man, football was just so much fun. It was awesome. It was just like you couldn't wait to get out and play the next day. It was just um your body wasn't like you were yeah, yeah, so exactly. beat up like you were i used to get yeah. an, i used to get oh. annoyed at high school coaches that would be like you guys are young this should not even, this shouldn't even feel like work like when you're feeling miserable oh, but yeah. it is looking back on it compared to when you're in the nfl yeah, oh man like yeah the, <laughs> winning a championship when i was 17 compared to winning a championship when i was 33 i believe i was um man, it took everything it took everything out of me that yeah. year, my last year. And oh it was yeah, well, and you're also going to you're Physically, waking up mentally. at like five a.m. You got to go to school all day long. Oh yeah, and then you have all that pressure. You don't know how to handle pressure when you're that age. I mean, you do, but not to the same degree. So like that pressure feels maybe bigger than it does in the NFL, where you've gotten into your system. And by the time you won a Super Bowl, you really had a process. I'm sure it was oh, man. It it was so like high school. I didn't know any better, so yeah. I was just like trying to go out and have fun and. Um, like we had all, we had a really, really good team. So it was, it was one of those things where you didn't have to put too much pressure on yourself. Cause we all like, we didn't have, so our school was so big and we had, um, so many guys that came out for the team that was, I think it was pretty rare in, in high school f- football. Nobody played both ways. Oh, really? We yeah. didn't have one single guy that played both ways. So, so you um, had a lot of good athletes. We had a lot of guys. Cause usually yeah. your best athletes are going to yeah, do like, a bunch. Yeah. You know, 3000 kids in the school and, um, yeah, you know, kids have been playing together forever. So, uh, but man, I had, I was like, I had so much more anxiety in the NFL. Oh, did, did you really? Okay, in, in, than I did in high school. Really? I, and I was, was the opposite. It was weird because it, it seemed like I got more anxious as the years went along, uh-huh. especially late in my career. I'm like, I was almost like having panic attacks. Like, like, do I want to go? play this game today i'd be okay if they canceled the game really like like, like my last couple of years so <laughs> well like, you're you're in a lot of pain weren't you it was it was pain but it was just like man like oh i was like, I, don't, I don't know why i was getting more nervous but maybe because i feel like oh this is getting to the end and, uh-huh. and you know i don't have very many more of these opportunities left to go so i was like anxious on the way to games and like that's really that's really interesting. Compared I wonder, to like, yeah, I, I think because early I think, in my career, it was do you think most guys it's the opposite? I like I felt like every year I realized, okay, the more the more energy I expend on game day morning being nervous, that's wasted energy for the game. Yeah, and I, I just kind of tried to learn to like approach it, like, all right, I'm it's just gonna be like a really focused practice. I'm gonna go out there and just play. Yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I, I, I understand what you're saying with that. It was just like it just what that wasn't your experience. It wasn't, at all. No, I don't know why. I, 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 I don't know if it was like I wasted energy doing it because I, I don't think I did that. It was just one of those things where I always got nervous before games. Yeah, and I think maybe early in my career, I was like, man, I just got to do my job and just focus on that and just keep my keep my job on the team, keep my starting position, whatever it was, and then everything else just kind of fell into place. And then later I got it was wasn't so worried about that it was more worried about i don't know it was like man i'm still playing football what am i doing you have like a midlife you have a midlife crisis yeah like yeah. around 10 years it just kind of, it's somehow yeah. weird and it probably sounds really weird to people that didn't play because it's, it's not an ungrateful thing or anything but it's just no. it's a strange i can't even put words to it where you just feel like I'm I'm playing a game, and yeah. uh, like I don't know I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Like I feel like I'm treading water, and I I wonder with you because okay, 
you you know you had to change from quarterback to tight end when you're in college, but you're asked yeah. at Wisconsin. You come to the NFL and you you fit really well into Gary Kubiak's system. And I, I think for let's see how many years we're in Houston. You eight were, years. Eight years. So wh- I wonder if part of it was maybe just the fact that you go to Baltimore, then you go to Denver, and in each in each of those places you got to prove yourself. And there's maybe more pressure in that respect, especially when you're an yeah. older guy that doesn't move as fast as some of the younger guys. By yeah. that time, you're just your body's not quite the same. It, yeah, I think that definitely has something to do with that. That's a really that's a great point in terms of if I would have been here my whole career, there wouldn't have been that like, okay, I gotta uh, prove myself to these new teammates and these these new coaches and or this you know whole new organization or this new fan base, right? Yeah, um, they're just kind of getting to know me. So I I think I probably put a lot of pressure on myself those those two years going those places to kind of um make sure that they knew that like the type of player that people got to know me as here uh-huh. um maybe like a consistent guy a hard worker and i just want to like make sure that i proved myself you know every week to those that to that fan base so it's a weird environment when you walk into a new locker room with, with it, guys it that don't different. know you yeah. and like no matter what your resume is because yeah. i remember when i came here to houston i'd been in the league for five years and, and had some success but it's a it's a whole bunch of brand new guys, and every one of them, you know how it is. Like every yeah. every rookie thinks he's better than you. And oh, uh, for sure, <laughs> man. It's so funny. It's like, yeah, running routes and these young guys. I'm like, and now I'm now I'm watching those same guys a few years later. I'm like, oh man, these this that's just like I I, I I I get it. Like I get where they're coming from and and what they're doing. But um, yeah, you walk into the locker room like Baltimore locker room, you have all those guys that. Like that core group of guys. Yeah, you know? yeah, um, you and got, and those are so those are some times. like there's that whole Baltimore culture too. Yeah, right. Like yeah. it's just from what I hear from guys that have played there, it's just a different environment. It is. I actually really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I enjoyed playing for John Harbaugh I, like a ton. Um, I'm really lucky to play for him and his coaching staff. Um, and Coach Coob fit in well with all that stuff. So. It's um, just like a, like I don't know. Is it like blue collar the best way to describe it, or just no nonsense, or just kind yeah, of like, yeah. like football guys that are really just hungry for playing football and not much else? It it is. Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> there's not exactly like a ton to do, uh-huh. uh, especially like where they have the facility up there. It's just in Owings Mills, Maryland. It's like where is this place? Oh, really? Yeah, it's I, know, up, I didn't ever knew up that. Like thirty minutes north of Baltimore, so. Um, Spend trying to spend as little time up there as possible, but it's like you're up there, so you might as well, you know, might as well get the most out of it. And then and go you back. Spend, go. Did you spend more time like with your teammates or with I, the one thing I'd heard about yeah. Baltimore from guys was that there seemed to be a culture, like almost an old school NFL culture, where guys really socialized together and hung out together more than most NFL teams. We, I, I, I found that I spent probably the most time at the facility in Baltimore of, of all my years. Really? Yeah. So just like. You know, whatever, whatever time we start the day, you know, 7.30, whatever it was up there. And then I wouldn't go home till I probably wouldn't leave the facility till like, 5, 6 o'clock, which was, like, honestly super late. That's, no, that's putting an 11-hour day, yeah. Compared to, you know, being here in Houston or, or, or being in Denver, uh, schedule just a little bit different. And, I don't know, at that time, it was just – they had a lot, of, a lot of older guys that would stick around to take care of their bodies and do all that stuff yeah. after practice and all that all that. That's good. No, but that that training room like kind of socialization time or socializing time is that's that's some of your favorite times. It's just like, oh, you're just sitting there, yeah. Because it usually it's an older crowd it. too. It is. Yeah, it's all those guys. It's like, like <laughs> and you actually get to you know talk and 
you get to know guys a little bit during that. So yeah, just sitting in the cold tub. This is uh, this is a quote I had for you since you're talking about how you were trying to prove yourself. This is really interesting. Michael Lombardi, who is an NFL personnel guy, he's on this podcast every week, but he wrote a book called uh, Gridiron Genius. I got to the section where he was talking about Bill Belichick and the game planning, and this is following Belichick through the week before the playoff game from the 2014 season, Ravens versus the Patriots. And I I got really excited when I got to this section uh, because it says this, Belichick has great respect for Gary Kubiak, the Ravens offensive coordinator, and mentions the naked bootlegs that are a signature of his offense. Most important, when the Ravens need to make a play, in Belichickian terms, a gotta-have-it play, he expects them to try to get the ball to tight end Owen Daniels or wide receiver Steve Smith. Belichick is so certain about Daniels' key role in the Ravens' attack that he will speak his name more than that of anyone on his own roster this week. And uh, he goes on to kind of illustrate this a few times during the week. They just kept – he keeps quizzing the team like, all right, look, they just got to they, – they went over the Steelers game, said they just got to – they just got they, they just converted a big first down. Sure. Who do you think the ball's going to? They answer Owen Daniels. Did you feel by the time you got to that playoff game that they were keying on you? Oh, my gosh. That's uh, you know, I remember pretty much every single game of my career, but that that was a huge game, and it I got just, a lot. It was of, a slugfest, right? Oh my gosh, we we were up fourteen two different times in that game. Yep, we were up fourteen nothing at twenty eight fourteen, and ended up losing thirty five thirty one, and you know that was the divisional game to go to the championship game, and oh man, like Baltimore's had a lot of success. One of the only teams that had a, like a decent amount of success about even like going up to Foxborough and playing and. Um, you know, winning games up there. They had done it, you know, a few seasons before. And so we felt pretty good about it. And just, you know, they, uh, they, 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 uh, bent some rules a little bit or invented new <laughs> oh, rules. Oh, that's right. Well, they, they had the trick play. Yeah. Well, right? they, they, they like declared like a running back ineligible and put him on the line of scrimmage and like ran a lineman flexed out. Flexed out the lineman. And right. It was like, but had like a tight end in the left tackle position, just ran him down the field a couple of times. Just got huge chunks and then. You, you feel and like getting points. Yeah, yeah. Harbaugh was <laughs> livid, but that's that's amazing that, like in that game, I had, we had some opportunities to make plays, and I think that's I felt like, you know, going into the game, I felt like in that game and similarly in the AFC Championship game when I was in Denver that they're taking away certain people and they're going to force me to beat them. Okay, in a sense. Yeah. And so it was like a lot of two-man coverages and um, in-and-out coverages with linebackers, and you know it's like dealing with Jamie Collins both both years. And so, did you actually feel a little bit the opposite? Almost like okay, if we're gonna get beat, we're gonna get beat by Owen Daniels. Then they like did they? It I thought, did. Like if anyone's like they're like we're not gonna let Steve Smith beat us. Okay. We're not gonna let Demarius Thomas beat us. Yeah. We're gonna make Owen Daniels beat us. Yeah. No kidding. Really. Because so. on the in the in the book Lombardi's saying that like man Owen Daniels is, I think he had did he have four or five catches in that game? They were yeah, having a hard time yeah. stopping you at least compared to what they wanted to do. Yeah. I, I think I had a, I had a score that game too. I had another opportunity to have another score. I wish I could have that play back. But so I wonder if a lot of it was just like really keying the linebackers up to be ready for you um, and, and, was, and knowing your routes and everything. Because that's one thing. I mean, Kubiak, like, you can 
people, I, I, it drives me nuts when you hear defensive backs say, like, oh, well, we know what routes are coming. Well, all right, great. There's only a, yeah, there's a, there's a finite number of routes that are out there that yeah. you can run, you know? Like, in Nobody's any, inventing situ- in any situation. It's not like Sean like, McVay has invented a bunch of new routes. No, yeah. no, yeah, it's just like, how are you going to run the route, how you set people up, and it's just, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But you, uh, so... I guess that's the, the thing that struck me about looking back over your career and I guess kind of the extension into life is how well you fit into Kubiak's system. And then because Gary brought you to Baltimore, then he brought you to Denver. Um, and there was what was it? What was it that you figured out about his system or knew about his system to where you you matched up well in it? Man, um, honestly, it. If I didn't have Coach Kubiak, I don't know if I would have had an NFL career, period. Really? But I don't mean just a little tongue-in-cheek, but, like, he was my coach yeah. my entire career, and he gave me an opportunity right away from, you know, at some point during training camp, my rookie year in 2006, that they like, all right, we're going to throw this guy in there and see what he can do. I think he – like, I had a good – grasp of his offense just from the jump and I was one of those things where I studied my ass off trying to figure out where knowing no matter where I was in the field I can run any play uh-huh. so he you know <clears throat> big thing with oh him, that's a, so for like when you're in motion or wherever they line you that in you motion know what's, like I could be because they, they would really line you know they line the Y up or line the U up if we had two tight ends and you know all of those spots are kind of interchangeable yeah depending on the formation so we run this play out of this formation or the same play out of a different formation, you can have you know, multiple different routes, right? You want to make sure you know what you're doing in every single situation. And I would, that would actually help me <laughs> when I was like, if I go out there, I'm like, oh, shoot. Wait, what? what is this? What play is this? And I just picture it in my mind. And, uh-huh. you know, you have brain farts like that sometimes. Like, oh, wait, where do I line up? What am I doing? And then you almost, <laughs> like, figure it out, like, that's what or I like. Reverse yeah. engineer it to like. Yeah, oh, like, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like make your way through the play. That's yeah. why I always try to remember that because like sometimes I'll get frustrated with Bill O'Brien or somebody for not running more pre-snap motion or or yeah, aligning the dressing stuff. And, yeah, and yeah. you're like, yeah, I always try to remember. That, yeah, the window dressing isn't as simple as it seems. <laughs> like it's really, no. especially when you have young guys out there, it changes everything. Yeah, and that, it's hard to get guys to do it and not make mistakes. It, it is. It is. It's. Uh, that's why it's. That's like we were. We got to be pretty good at it because we had that. You know, uh, like that core group of that skill position on uh, those Texans teams that you know we had four or five years of of those you know handful of guys that run the same stuff over and over and over again. Right, so. and also, and I wonder too, maybe they don't get enough credit for being as smart as they were. Like as a group, you guys had you, Arian Foster, um, Andre Johnson, like yeah. a, a bright Kevin. group of guys. Yeah, Kevin and and. I know people like get sick James of hearing Casey, about like, yeah. hey, Kevin's a good blocking wide receiver. Like I, yeah, he was. They, sure. He was like, and I don't think that people ever really appreciated like how important that is in Kubiak scheme. That like oh, that's yeah. how you get big chunk plays is because you've got wide receivers that are willing to block downfield. Yeah, if you're gonna go in there push crack, or if you know they had Kevin sifting a lot on the backside of plays, yeah, like stuff that tight ends would typically be doing. They, yeah, they put his, they motion him in, 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 the, in down in there tight and have him try to cut a defensive end like. I know he loved doing that. So. <laughs> <laughs> that was his favorite part. Well, I remember from what I remember you your rookie year was yet you came in and and started doing really well real quickly. 
and Mark Bruner was there already. Mark Bruner is yeah, one Bruce. of my favorite all time yeah. all time guys, and he was there the first. We were there together for three years out of the first five years. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's, he's, he's yeah, guy. I know he's like one of the best guys. Yeah, he's, seriously, like how is this guy so nice? Was there ever any was there any awkwardness at all? Like when you came in, where you were no, like clearly the like uh, you were the guy that was not, not really replacing him because he's a blocking tight end. But but you're also going to be you're going to get more reps and snaps and, than Bruner. Yeah, I mean he. Uh, I think at that time, what, were you guys the same year? Um, I think he, he's a little bit older well, than me. Yeah, I yeah. think it was like his 11th year when I came in. Yeah. Something like that, um, 10th or 11th, 12th year. And, I, you know, I don't know what um, what they had planned. I, I think – I don't think I was necessarily the guy, like, they drafted me like, all right, he's our starter. Like, they had to see, like, can I do this? Can I – and, you know, Coach Coop does a lot of two tight end stuff. So, yeah. Brew is going to be out there doing – you know, contributing and, and all that stuff, but he was awesome. Um, He's like, it's had, hard to explain like how good a person he is compared oh to like man. how how old school like violent he was on the football. Oh field. my gosh! Like he was like, one of the scariest dudes. Like he used to be our guy when I was in Jacksonville and we played the Steelers. It yeah. was like, listen, listen, this guy will kick your ass. <laughs> like you yes. gotta, you've got to take care of Mark Bruner and know where he is all the time. So when I came to Houston, when he came to Houston. I was expecting to meet like this dude, <laughs> like there was getting in fights and bars and everything. And yeah. He comes up and he was like, "Hey, buddy, how you doing?" He's complete opposite. Just the most genuinely nice, like almost like you can't even believe that he is as nice as he is. Right, right. You know? He almost like, like, "Yeah, where's where's the like, you're not gonna believe?" It. Like I don't know who suddenly. I think it was maybe Jeb. Jeb puts here. He's like, "Yeah, this guy is so nice. You're not gonna believe how nice he is. Like, it's just you're not gonna believe him. He's gonna be, you know, think he's being fake, but like." That's his brew. Yeah, man. that's he just awesome. that's just him. Think, now thinking back to like me, like say myself now being in year ten, if I had a rookie come in and they had plans for him to be starting, and when I had been a starter my whole career, um, like to compare that, and I don't know, I definitely wouldn't have handled it as well as as Brunet. I mean, and you like, wouldn't have made it. I don't think you would have made it outward or anything. No, you know? no. But in terms but of like, kind of embracing your role is like, oh, that's my job now is to help bring this guy just, along. You know, I didn't realize it at the time because I had no experience with any of that stuff. Right. But like, and I was like, all right, I'm, I'm here. We're, we're teammates, and now I'm playing. And it's like, I, 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 sorry, bro. I don't think it's fine. But like, he, he, was, he was just like, it was never any awkwardness. It was never even a thought of it. So it was like for you to bring that up. I was like, oh man, like that c- it could get awkward. I'm sure it does get awkward with, with certain positions and certain guys. Um, I had a guy those, uh, those scenarios. You know? I had a, I had a friend, Brant Boyer, who's a special teams coach in with the Jets right now, and he's just like an all time funny storyteller. I should just have him on to tell this story. But he was a rookie in Miami with when Brian Cox was there. Oh and gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and when Brian Cox, like all through the offseason, he'd go golfing with him every day. And Brian Cox was cool as hell to him because they yeah. were both linebackers. Yeah, and okay. uh, he kind of took him under his wing a little bit. He shows up to training camp and he said all of a sudden, like, Brian Cox was a completely different person. Like, Brian like, Cox flipped into this <laughs> mode where, like, you little son of a bitch, you think you're going to take my job? <laughs> and, like, wouldn't talk oh, to him, man. just hated him. And then once they made the team, complete opposite again. Then back. all of a sudden, yeah, but that's what, like, wow. that's what Brian Cox was so good at doing was the, Brian Cox tapped into, like, the most psychotic elements he needed to get what a yeah. five, a guy that runs a five. Point one forty as a linebacker does. Like Brian yeah. Cox, 
he supposedly could barely bench 225, couldn't run, like was a was what? athletically a mess. Like those are these are these are the stories told him about it. I don't know what they actually were, but wow. that he was really no he didn't test well or anything, but he got on the field and he was just a complete maniac. Yeah. And uh and yeah, so so Brant's Brant's got some really good stories. About he could play him. fast. He could play fast. Could yeah, play exa- fast. yeah, exactly. You see some guys in practice fast, and you're like, fast. what the hell is this guy? And you see him on game day. Um, <laughs> yeah. What are you doing wow. now? I, uh, you walked in and I see your see, – this is why I think you're young too. You're doing the young guy thing and you've got the full-length tights on underneath oh, your workout man. shorts. Yeah, that's I, – I, I almost it, it feels awkward if I don't have full-length tights on. Really? Because I've, like, I've been wearing these under oh, – yeah. You know how they had the, you know, you know, wear those socks, and it's just I hate wearing the socks. <laughs> the end of the game, game day days, socks. Game yeah. day socks this is this the worst? Well, they're so. like out of 1978. They're polyester. Yeah, they're, they're not. So it's not a comfortable. Thick. Feel. It's just like not like they got better once the you know Nike took over. They started having Nike socks. So, oh, okay. But I just got into the habit of wearing like the long blue tights or the long black tights underneath my pants, so I could just wear like. Short white socks are not like, you know, squeezing my legs yeah. and all that stuff, and that just got so comfy, and you got used to it. And well, now you, know, you don't look. I mean, that's that's what all the so kids now are I just doing wear, these days. Yeah. So, but <laughs> I can't. I sweat too much, man. I can't. Like I tried it once, and I was like, I went really? into like a squat workout, and I, which is dumb. I do squats like once every three months. I'll go to the gym and do a squat workout, and then regret it for the next two months. Oh man! Like so, you put a bar in your back? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I get the bruises and oh, everything. Man. Oh man! Oh yeah! Right across. Oh, and I always like it's it's exactly the same way every time. Like I'm just yeah. gonna see how it feels, and I'll get 225, and I'm like, yeah, it feels good. Oh, this is, this feels this good. Is good. And then I'll yeah. work my way up to like 355. Oh man! <laughs> and just and then and then immediately realize yeah, it was a mistake. Ambitious. I get down it to the bottom. I'm like, oh, that was it. I always I have I have like a weird fantasy every now and then that somehow I don't know. Like I'm gonna start doing athletic things again or something. <laughs> when I said, oh Dan, don't I hope Dan Riley doesn't listen to this. Our old strength coach. Yeah, he'll uh, he'll think I'm an idiot. Um, I don't. I, this is what I worry about because you've been out of the league how long now? Four years. This will be my third season. Third out. year. Out. I was like, I, I was probably looking back season. on it. I might have been clinically depressed for the first three years, dude. Yeah, I mean, retirement's hard. It's this getting is, out of it. This like, is transitioning is hard. Yeah, and your guy. This is the thing about football players is that most of the guys that do well in the NFL, even even if it doesn't outwardly look like it, most guys are guys that do well with structure. Like you don't, yeah, yeah. Like you don't. Even if you're kind of a renegade, you're a guy that thrives in a team environment with instruction and all that stuff. Yeah. And then you get out of the league, and all of a sudden, it's the exact opposite. Right. And I, the biggest thing I discovered, I think, and and finally, is when I actually came back here to do radio, was that I realized that. I was like, I valued my free time too much. Like I was putting too much priority in my free time when really what I needed was structure. Yeah. And, like, cause I was like, I was drinking all the time. I was just, I just, I was, I was kind of falling apart. And this is when all the CTE stuff yeah. was really coming to the forefront. And you see what guys, what happens to guys when they start going that downward spiral. So I just, are, are you, what are you, what are you doing now? Do you have like plans oh, for the man. future or anything? I, I think I'm in a similar position to what you were, honestly, to be per- like honest, yeah, um, really honest. Um, the whole structure when you're playing, it's like when you're playing, like, oh man, I wish I had more free time to do this. Or you actually value your free time more so when you were playing. Like, uh-huh. all right, I'm gonna, I, I know I have this day or I have this free night where I can sleep in the next day or whatever it is. And you make the most of that now. It's like, all right, I'm like, I can't wait till I, I can do that every day. 
Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then I get to do it every day, and then I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is this is not exactly <laughs> as awesome as I thought it was going to be. This um, is not filling up my <laughs> this day. This is not. <laughs> oh, man. This is, uh, yeah, and it's like, you know, you're used, I've been in that type of structure really since I was a freshman in high school, yeah. you know? And so that's basically 20 years of super structured life all year long uh-huh. and now I don't have it. Uh-huh. Yeah, my kids and you know, maybe go work out or play some golf, but it's like, oh my gosh. Right, like there's not you you don't well, the, I think the biggest thing is you don't have a goal always. And yeah, like, like what is my purpose right now? What am I Right. Or what like or what am I even? And you know what I'll How say? am I contributing to to anything right now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't well, you know. It's no, like, I, no, it's completely true. No, it's not it's not like you're feeling sorry for yourself or anything. That's all like a, people have a drive to produce and do things. Um, and I'll like I'll I'll just say honestly, I think the whole time you spend playing football, you get conditioned to be like, all right, don't talk about how it's nice to earn money, and like don't think you, that you care about money. I like I don't even care if it would be making seven fifty an hour. It, for me, I like making a buck. Sure. Like I actually just like I feel like okay, this is what I watched my relatives do when I was growing up. Like they're all farmers and everything is like you're kind of working for a buck yeah. and. Maybe you're working for a nonprofit or maybe you're working for something else, but I just, I like getting a paycheck and I, I, there's just, it feels good. You know, like I wish, I wish I still got a paper paycheck. Cause I like, <laughs> I like getting a paper paycheck and be like, Oh, look at this. I, the pace I, accomplished, I accomplished something over the last couple of weeks. Have you thought about getting, cause you were a meteorology major. Yeah. Are you, so are you, once you get your meteorology degree, can you call yourself a meteorologist or do you have to get like licensed or something? Um, I think you can. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I think people call themselves meteorologists with less credentials um, than a degree. So, but there's you, you can't can, call yourself like weather boy though. Uh, yeah. Well, like, yeah. that's what you should that's be. You should be the hot weather boy. The weather boy. Like pretend you pretend you don't have a degree. Boy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, so you can get like certified like. Um, American Meteorological Society like certification or but that just takes like it takes a long nothing. time. Oh really? Oh oh okay. Like even without want, a degree, you can you want to get AM. No, you I can like take, if you oh, have okay. your degree, and then right. you can like like hey, I went to you know went to Wisconsin, got my degree here, and um, I honestly haven't like looked into it. But the people I've spoken to, other um, I've gone to some weather conferences over the years and. Like, hey, if you want to get certified or you want to, like, just let me know and we can make it happen. Yeah. Like, like okay. Is it? Wh- I don't know what would you helps me, but. Like. <laughs> would you want to do that, though? Would you want to, like, do something? Like, what if you started, yeah. your, own, what if you started your own weather website? Just, like, with a 10-minute a video every day. Uh, that's interesting. Does that intrigue you I, at all? I, I'm if I really bad with, with, like, being creative in terms of ideas. Yeah, yeah. I am really good at. Um, I think listening to direction and learning and <clears throat> doing what I'm told to do. Uh-huh. Um, like a lot of people like, you know, these di- like, especially this day and age, like, you know, start their own business or right. start, you know, I-, I just don't have that type of background and, or like expertise in that, in that sense. Um, if you're like, Hey, I think you'd be really good at doing this. I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll go do that. Yeah. Like I can that's kind of like how it was for, for football with me. Like, and they just give me, but give me some instruction. Yeah, Let me know what to do. And I'll, like, I'll go do it. Like, I, but that's a to, scary thing. For me to create something on my own is not really my thing. Yeah. But to do, like, if you have an idea, oh, I can make that work for you, though. What's like, the, the scary part for you right now, though, is that you do have, like you said, the free time kind of gets <laughs> almost 
burdensome or stressful in a way, but at the same time, yeah. like, okay, for you to think about, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to sign on to some job where I got to be there five days a week, 48 to 50 weeks a year. That's scary too. Yeah. That, because that's right now, scary. I mean, like Henry, Henry, your son just went through and, and is beating cancer. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it was, I'm sure it was really, really helpful to be there a lot. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. yeah that, that's, that's what's been, that's like the silver lining of, you know, not having to be at work right now mm-hmm. is that I can be around my kids a lot and be able to, I didn't have to miss any of his treatments. I get to be there for every single minute of everything um, over the summer. So for, to be able to be available for that and be present for that, yeah, was meant a lot. It was obviously a very stressful situation for us over the summer. So that was tough, but to be there for him. Um, I would have just hated not being there. Right, it made me right. Feel like, yeah, I, and it is. It's like, when you when you see people go through down, that. And right. I, I would imagine just like every aspect of your life. Like, how do you? I would imagine every minute of the day, you're there. Like you're yeah. in your mind. No matter what you're doing, every minute you're going to be preoccupied somewhat with your son and exactly what's going on. Always thinking about him because there's, you know, we we didn't know what to expect in terms of. Um, you know, side effects, reactions from drugs, like any little thing that happened to him. So, like, here's an example of how, like, we always had to pay, we feel like we always had to pay so close attention to anything, everything. I feel like I was taking his temperature, just uh-huh. to take his temperature, <clears throat> like, 10 times a day just to make sure he was good. So, he had a port put in so, so where he could get his chemo. Mm-hmm. Like, in treatment. his chest? So, yeah, so he had a port put in his chest. Okay. So, instead of poking him and doing an IV every time, they just like just poke right through it into the port, and so he can walk around and be comfortable and not have a tug on him and, and hurt him. So, um, but when you have a port, if you get a temperature of not not a hundred and two, not or not a hundred and four, a hundred point four, okay, it's an emergency room, okay, because so, you've got like an access to infection right there. Yeah, Is that like, the problem? Could, yeah. So like that's what they're concerned about. Okay. So like if you get a temperature and it and it gets a hundred point four degrees, like all right, you need to go to the emergency room now. Um. And then you get like kind of priority because of the situation. So, you know, we're always you're constantly checking yeah, that. Because like, especially with kids, they can go the from time. 98 to 102 in like so, an hour. Yeah, yeah, it happens so fast. So um, that was always on our minds. So um, just just that type of thing like every day. Yeah. Was uh, he aware? Was he aware that I guess something extra was going on? I mean, like he knows. Like, like what do you what do you tell? Yeah. Him? So we were. Um, we basically we told him everything. Did you? So, okay. um, you know, he was young, so we, he got diagnosed. He was two, and he t- um, turned three during the middle of the summer, so kind of right in the middle of his treatments. But he was aware enough to like, all right, buddy, we're going to go to the doctor. We gotta go take a nap. So when we first found out, he, we had to go take a nap. Uh-huh. So he's got a um, he took an MRI. He had to put him to sleep um to you know see where everything was yeah in his body check out where the tumor was and if there was any more anywhere else so he had a uh, few of those so we go take a nap and then so he had his robot friends that he got to meet at the hospital so okay. um <laughs> oh all the, the, all the all medical the devices so like yeah robot so, so he had two so he had two different robots so he had and he's the, in texas children's right yeah so the blue robot the blue robot every time blue robot does his blood pressure and it takes a temperature all right so this white world robot was the actual infusion robot that, like, you know, uh, the chemo drugs, you know, yeah. IV and everything like that. So 
he has a white robot friend, has a blue robot friend, so they were his friends. Uh-huh. So they're helping him get better. And he's like, cause, you know, we told him he had a tumor, and we had to go to the doctor to make his tumor go bye bye. Yeah. His port's helping his tumor go bye bye. Uh-huh. So he, he understood all that stuff. He actually kind of liked going to, I don't say he liked it, but like the whole setup at TCH is awesome to where you're not like just sitting in a room, mm-hmm. like like a crappy hospital room. Um, it doesn't, just it doesn't feel like clinical and scary. Like right. Like so like kid. There are times where, depending on what drug he was getting, that they had to monitor him in a room um, for at least like the first 15, 20 minutes of like of that infusion. And most of these, he was outpatient infusion, so it was it was nice. Like it was three days in a row, we could pop in in the morning and be there for like you know ten, twelve hours. But he got to go home at night. Um, but after that monitoring time, we got to go out. <laughs> he'd drag his white robot. We'd drag it with him, and he'd go out. This big open. Now, does it look like a robot, or is that just what you called it? Is we, it a? Uh, okay. It doesn't look like a robot. Right. I mean, yeah, it's not like some like, Texas children's thing where they make it look like a robot. No, okay. no, but like actually, it's not a bad idea. Yeah. Um, no, it was, it was just like just your standard, you know, Hold infusion second, machine. That's, that's going to be your and my business idea. <laughs> We're do the medical robots. Like yeah, make them make them look all friendly. <laughs> write yeah. that down. Okay. Um, but they had this big open room. I'm talking. It was like it was like a th- like three stories open, like tall, open, like wind- glass windows, and so you had a lot of natural light in there. And they had all the, you know, like a bunch of kids, bunch of patients, just in there. They had toys, TVs in there, so it didn't it didn't feel like you know. You're in there getting chemo. You yeah. know, it's like at least you're. He was getting, he was shooting hoops while he was all hooked up. Really? And, you know, playing with the cars. And yeah. Almost like making friends in there. You know, with other kids doing the same stuff. So, um, it's kind of about uh, as good as you can get it over there. Is he the so oldest grandkid for your he for is. your parents? He's yeah, okay. the first one. Yeah. So your whole family. This is. Uh, <laughs> it was crazy. This man. is uh, this is uh, big big stuff they're dealing with with their their two-year-old grandson and nephew, your, your two brothers, uh, were they able to come down at all? Are they both here? Are they here so still? They, no, um, the youngest one is here still. Okay. Um, uh, Harrison, <coughs> he is, excuse me. He's, Harrison's one that went to Illinois, right? Harrison went to Princeton. Prince, okay, Harrison went to Princeton and Hayden, Hayden went to Illinois. Illinois, okay. but then finished up at U of H. Okay. So Hayden's still down here. Um, Harrison lives in San Fran and my sister lives in Boston. Um, and... You know, we didn't have a lot of outside visitors uh, from like out of town during this. You know, during the time of his treatments, just because he was, you know, immunocompromised, and we didn't want to bring any extra, ex- you know, yeah. outside oh, yeah. stuff coming yeah. in. So he didn't get to see a lot of friends over the summer. He missed birthdays. He missed like he didn't have a birthday party of his own. So there's a lot of things that he had missed just because we were, you know, being careful about, you know, um, his immune system was mm-hmm. was down for the most part. Um, but they got, you know. Talked to him, FaceTime with him. Everyone was awesome about it. But it was one of those situations, like, for us, it was just, like, just survival mode. Because uh-huh. we find out about stuff, it's like, all right, now we do this, and now we do this, uh-huh. and now we do this. And it's just kind of like, and you that, just try that to, was my mindset. You just mindset try to lay it, like, almost like, all right, here's our objective. Like, this is what we're going to, this is what we attack next. Yeah. And I was uh, like, Angela, Angela's a, f- uh, a former public prosecutor. I got to guess she's yeah. kind of got an aggressive mindset about stuff. Well, yeah, she's, she's the only, she's the reason that. Henry is alive today, I think. Right. Or well, that he is in the he's in the um like his status is what it is now and he's in, like prognosis is is very favorable for the future because of just my wife's awareness when he was playing outside one day. Right. He said he he got red. He just kind of got red and yeah, stayed so red. Half his face got red. Yeah. 
and sweaty. Uh-huh. And the other side was pale and dry. Uh-huh. And my wife was like, this is kind of strange. And I had seen it the day before. Um, but I made an excuse for it. I was like, oh, no, the sun was on that side of his face. He was shooting out, he was, like shooting hoops outside. Sun was on that side of his face. Like, that's why that side of his face is red. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and you like, would have liked it. If you were single dad, it would have gone on uh, for a while. It was, yeah, I would have <laughs> no, probably wouldn't. You would have turned him over to get here. a tan on the other side of <laughs> yeah, his face. Exactly. Yeah, uh, Like, he'd still, still be sitting here and not knowing about uh, his situation. So she fe- she's like, all right, well, we got to get this checked out. And um, sure enough, like, yeah. the Man. tumor was causing that. It's called uh, anhydrosis is mm-hmm. um, the symptom of this thing called Horner syndrome, which he got diagnosed with. And then the cause of Horner's is typically a neuroblastoma or tumor in a certain situation, a certain spot. So, um, yeah, man, he, he still has that. He probably always will. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's just just cause, uh, the nerves, uh, were damaged. Okay. Um, but you take the cancer out. So it's still as, yeah. The, okay. Yeah. So, so the tumor's out of there. um, and we found out next week if if there's if it's anywhere else in his body, just a rescan, and and it hasn't been mm-hmm. uh, from the start. So hopefully it still won't be. Um, but it's one of those things where like neuroblastoma is actually kind of like a, a self-explanatory. Like it is uh, like a neuron blast. Okay. Like a ner like. Like in the fetus, the neuron like explodes. Oh, like really? Okay. It happens before he's even born. Okay. So, uh, he's been living with it for <coughs> his whole life, um, and then those the, those cells around that neuron just don't mature. Okay. Um, and they re- you know reproduce that way, but. I think um, you should coin that phrase though too. That sounds a lot cooler for a kid than neuron blast. Neuron blast, yeah, you've neuroblastoma. Got, you've got, neuron blast, I'm telling yeah. you, you're stumbling onto your next career already. <laughs> like uh, coming up with cool things for kids in hospitals yeah. to make it more. Uh, uh, Texas gonna, Children's will fund it for you. Uh, I like it. I like it. We got to work with them a little bit more on that. Are um, you? <laughs> yes. I don't know where I was, where we're going with that, but. Um, where, 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 where we were just we talking find? about just, uh, I, I guess, just where you are right now. And oh, yeah. you got to go on. I mean, you're, you're going to monitor it yeah. for a long, long time, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. He keeps checking it out. Oh, yeah, the the, uh, the, fa- the anhydrosis thing. Yeah, so so his uh, those nerves were, were damaged, and it'll always be like that. So his also, um, his left eye is a little bit s- is smaller than his right eye. Okay. And that happens with a lot of people. My yeah. wife actually had the same thing. and. Um, that's something that probably won't like come back either. Mm-hmm. It's just something that just is going to be what it is, and yeah. it's it's more apparent when he's like like tired at the end of the day. It's like that eye is like kind of drooping like, looks, a little bit, looks droopy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's just another uh, you know uh, symptom of the Horner syndrome. You know what? There, if there's one thing I've noticed about kids, like compared to I think when we grew up. And I, and I think a lot of this started back around Columbine because there started to be such a focus on anti-bullying um, with schools. Kids, it, like, to generalize, to me, it seems like they're a lot nicer. Um, like, in, in when it comes yeah. to just picking on picking on kids that have something different about them, I just don't know. Like, they don't – maybe it changes once they get to junior high. I'm sure it does. Yeah. Uh, I just don't think they, they don't they – don't, like, point it out or make a deal out of it the way they used to. I, that, that's just been my experience, at least. I, I'll, wait and, I'll wait and find out. Um, yeah. Because it's kind of just, you know, he goes to his preschool. It's 
they're three year old kids, so yeah. Um, well, three, but then three year olds are they don't mean anything by it. They just say like, well, yeah, they're <laughs> just like they're just maybe observing, or like you know, you know, just stating an observation they have. They don't, they don't, like. I don't think they even have the, um, like the ability to like make fun of somebody because right, of, like, right. like I don't even know what it is. So yeah, exactly. Or, like, or how to make fun yeah. of somebody yet? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you'll learn, kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are you? Oh, this is the question I wanted to ask you about just being a meteorologist in Houston, or at yeah. least uh, at least trained as a meteorologist in college. I've seen you tweet about this at times, but like, look, we, uh, we're we're in like the oil and gas capital of the world. Yeah. Um, when the subject of global warming comes up. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> to you, how do you I, how do you handle? Because like honestly, when it comes to things that are politically charged, um, scientific topics, I always try to try to look at the other side. And I just like frankly, I've I've read various opinions about why people don't think that global warming is real, and I've nothing's ever latched on with me. Um, I'm very right. much on the mainstream of most scientists and how they feel about it. What what's the biggest objection? you hear to global warming like as far or do people just not talk to you about it uh the biggest objection yeah um they they just think it's like they want to harp on um that it had been warmer Previous, right. Previously. Like, uh, okay, this okay, this drives me nuts because people will bring up like the fourth grade earth science stuff. They're like where they'll say, Well, you know, yeah. there are there are cycles of uh there are cycles of warming and cooling and this is just one of them. But like yes, I, I know that. I learned it in fourth grade about the cycle and, and most meteorologists or climatologists understand yeah. that too. So you haven't this, really like yeah, you oh, generally oh, people are, don't yeah. generally people aren't presenting you with things that you don't already know. No, they, like okay. you want to they they well, I don't know why people want to be opposed to it if it's something that's happened i just don't understand like why are you denying it what for what right like i feel like there's tons of opportunities energy wise to make money off of off of this situation like mm-hmm. I th- and that's what it's all about for them anyway right so other energy sources like these same companies the oil companies you know, like they can use their money to fund this other approach to energy and mm-hmm. they can make they can find ways to make money off it i just you know i don't yeah and i guess the motivation it, it usually comes back to that in some respect um I, on one level i guess what bothers me is that that's at the very upper level upper levels of decision makers but where it filters down to people that like won't be affected in the immediate short term still wanting to deny something that's happening and is that that is plainly obvious um i don't i don't quite you know i used to get into arguments um which you can imagine how this went for me uh about religion (laughs) and uh (laughs) and about just well let's say the topic of evolution yeah um and like for me that i came from you know i had started off as a biology major and i know a Uh a few things here and there and i would get these objections about the theory of evolution where it was just really frustrating with me because it would. I, I'd have to argue with people telling me that evolution, um, the theory of evolution, says things that it does not say. <laughs> like, right. You right, know, right. or that actually, or, no, the, it or they'll claim that yeah, like hey, well, scientists think they have all the answers, and I'm like, well, no, 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 they don't. They really yeah. like the whole concept of science is saying I have, I don't know the answer. I'd like to learn exactly. more about the universe. You know, exactly. Um, so I just, I, I would imagine, but for the most part, like I, like I, I've come to peace with how to talk to people about these things, and I'm not as combative as I used to be, sure. and I can have a good conversation with somebody about, um, and you know, and honestly, a lot of it came from working at children's hospitals um because i used to be very just just 
bombastic, annoyingly debating debate. Uh, just I would debate things when the, I didn't need to. Mm-hmm. And when you start working in children's hospitals and you meet families whose kids have terminal illness, you yeah. realize like, oh, okay, uh, like I'm not I'm not in really the mood to try to take something away from them that they're using for for emotional support. Sure. And that also like, okay, what am I not getting here that they are? Um, but I just, uh, but you generally, you don't seem like somebody that probably gets in a whole lot of shouting arguments I, with people. See, I've, I've, ta- I've gotten into a couple situations where, um, like one of my brothers like, has a coworker or something like that. Like, hey, he, de- he doesn't believe in this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it like gas me up. I'm like, oh, like, oh man, now I gotta go talk to this guy. <laughs> they had a couple, like, at like an event, had a couple beers, had talking to this guy, and it's like, okay, here we go. Yeah. This guy starts, you know, spouting off and, you know, bringing up stuff that makes no sense. But the thing is, like, I, well, I've always been like a science guy. Uh-huh. Like, seems like you have that science background. So, like, scientists like have no agenda they're right. not trying to prove something that they want because they believe in it they're and literally because the greatest the greatest way to achieve notoriety as a scientist is to disprove something or right. to prove like it's they like they try their yeah. hardest to disprove what's <laughs> yeah. happening you know right. they, like they, they go at, at length to do that like, and to disprove like a new whatever ends up whatever actually the new idea that does eventually become consensus People go to great lengths to like test that and see if that is should be consensus. Yeah, like if if, if they're like yeah, if scientists find something out like oh like sure, this looks like global warming, like man, let's let's do everything we can to debunk this. Like how, how it's not global warming, it's not global warming, but yeah. like, if it keeps showing that it is, like they just it's just that's the thing that people feel like certain people that don't have a science background just think that there's some agenda. And there's like I was I've been looking at this. Sorry, when we've been talking. Um, American Meteorological Society <coughs> responded to um, Donald Trump about the comments he made recently on like a 60 Minutes. Um, I don't know if I retweeted it, but I, I favorited it. And so it's like the way they worded this, they wrote a letter to him. Mm-hmm. And the way they worded the letter, and, and it's very scientific in terms of like, like, like let me see, read an expert of it, excerpt of it. Um. <laughs> Let's, okay, okay. You said you said that scientists are making this political, which is misleading and very damaging. That scientific community welcomes all who commit to the pursuit of understanding through science, irrespective of their political views, religious beliefs, and ethical values. As an institution, the American Meteorological Society takes no political positions, and we proudly count among our members both individuals who strongly support you and those who routinely disagree with you. We're stronger for the breath of our, uh, you know, for the breath of our membership. So like it's like. He thinks that there's just like people that don't like him, right? That are that, that have are this like opinion pre- for like right, pushing this because agenda of, because Obama. Actually, got there's him people on both something. sides that yeah. they like you, they hate you, but or they all agree on this. Yeah, they, obvious thing. And, and this is honestly, <laughs> this is what I've always wondered about with with environmentalism, and this is what bothers me too is just that, like most of my most of my conservative friends, I'll, I'll say this: most of my friends that are most into like hunting and fishing and spending time outdoors um, yeah. are, are politically conservative. Right. And I don't understand like the, the goals of the goals of what I like to do in my leisure time, which is spend a lot of time outside um, in clean air and fresh water <laughs> right. and everything yeah. are kind of consistent with the same things that would help reduce carbon emissions also. And, yeah. and also like, so I don't, I don't uh, like for me, 
for me, I just I would like both. Even if I didn't agree with global warming um, or the theory of global warming or, or climate change or whatever the hell exactly. people have been forced to talk about it these days, um, right. I, I would like to have those things anyway. <laughs> maybe maybe just like it's been worded wrong this whole time, and it's just like the climate change, global warming, like maybe people don't like those terms, uh-huh. but it's like yeah. Like but you a said, simple like, clean air. We want clean air. Right. We want clean water. Well, you like, know what's you know what's in the why here don't and now. We do what we can do to make those things. It, right. Real, in the, well, yeah. and part of the problem too is whenever you're predicting something off in the future, there's a tendency because for one, predictions yeah. aren't accurate. They sure. might be right totally, but when you predict that climate's going to change by a certain amount within the next thirty years, and it only changes by X amount instead of Y amount, then it looks like you were wrong right. with oh, your yeah, prediction. Exactly. Yeah. Versus like okay with ozone with uh, air quality with these other things we can see very clear correlations to poor health you know we can see asthma rates we can see heart disease in in city like we can see exactly what happens when you don't have clean air clean water you can see what's happening with the red tide uh on the gulf coast and and that maybe it's as simple as that uh as, as far as actually showing like okay look uh, kids are ki- kids are dying <laughs> like because yeah. of dirty air. Like, can we can we at least handle this present this problem that's right yeah. here? And Whatever now. is causing that, who yeah. can't like? I don't know. People are like focused on why it's happening, or it's just like it is happening. Yeah. So like, let's let's do what we can. Right? Well, it's uh, like this, this like so it seems so simple to me, and people just complicate it so much. I've, uh, I've I'm glad I got you onto this because now you'll get reached out to by many many people after the uh, after the. <laughs> oh, be good. Be good. Oh, be good. I'm on. I'm like attended like I like when I uh, if I retweet something or it's like and I because I kind of tend to be on the. Uh, I would say not the conservative side, like probably yeah. like a progressive side of like just things in general, mm-hmm. like whatever climate change or whether it's, um, you know, taking a knee or like supporting certain, you know, rights, you know, so like, and I will go out on Twitter and like support somebody with that or like, uh, call somebody out for something like that, and then it's just like, and, just and where you're not down. even necessarily making a huge point, but you're just showing a little side of yourself. That oh, dude, I made a joke yeah. about I made a joke about Brexit during the Astros game last night. That wasn't even a political joke, and I had people go, I like honestly, I don't <laughs> I even know. I think I saw that. I don't even know which side <laughs> Trump is on in Brexit or anything, but apparently I was on the wrong side of it. Like all I remember was like when there were, there were people that voted for Brexit. In Britain, that yeah. immediately expects regret afterwards, right. like which was funny to me because it was, it's it's. Do you? It's so anyway. There was a facial expression of Josh yeah, James, no, saw, which kind of looked exactly. Thing. There was a guy. I, oh. that, there was a guy that had said he had voted for Brexit but didn't expect it to pass. So after it passed, he was like, "No, yeah, like that's yeah. exactly what it looked like." Kind of like, "Oh no, what did I do?" Um, and I almost like I people were coming at me about that. There's the I don't I don't know I don't I just want to make political jokes. I'm sure. <laughs> but because I'm sure but, all those people know exactly what Brexit is yeah, and, and like how it affects everything else over there. Well, that's where I, like I miss the days when you could make like bipartisan political jokes. I feel like Johnny Carson and those guys back in the day took sh- probably took shots at both sides, yeah. and the people didn't get too worked up about it. But they also didn't have Twitter. If Johnny Carson That's had true. Twitter and he had probably – he would have had 20 million followers, yeah. he's going to get a bunch of responses every time he picks on Eisenhower or every time he picks on Kennedy. And yeah. uh, so I, I always – you have to remember that. And I, I talked to Wade Smith about this a little bit too, that like no matter – even when you're winning an argument, like in the in the public consciousness, especially in anything political – 
you've still got 40% of people opposed to you. So you can't get too wrapped up in... And like, wow, I can't believe these people are being jerks to me. Like, ah, that's that's just it's life. Just, it's just, yeah. That's it, advice it, I give, but don't follow. I'm very yeah. bad at it. I'm very, like, that's why I stay out of politics publicly like, as much it, as possible. You're going to see it, too, because, you know, everyone, like, everyone has a voice in the, in the on those platforms. So it's like, you're going to see, like, you will see both sides for sure. Right, and you'll right. get like a lot of it, and, and you'll get a lot of, and you'll get a lot of lowest common denominator responses exactly. too. You and that's those, where, yeah. and that's what I think happens is people sometimes, and and right now what happens is a lot of intelligent people on both sides of any issue, unfortunately, because we have an we have an inherently negative bias in our brains to look for negative because we want to like in in nature sure, yeah. we need to watch out for things that are threats. So I think when you see all these possible opinions. You almost gravitate to the dumbest, scariest opinion on the other side, yeah, yeah. and you start yeah, to believe do. that all liberals are, are are socialists, or all conservatives are racists, or all of this. And I don't know what the answer or the solution is, other than people got to just try to you got to try to curate your newsfeed oh, a little has, bit better. Yeah, I know. Well, the thing is, that's the thing. Like, I want both sides. I want to be able to read both both sides. Like, I want to follow people that are like super conservative. I want to follow people that are on the other end of that. Right. Just to kind of like, get like, both sides. Like what, what are these people? Why are these people saying this? Why are these people saying that? How, why they feel the way they feel? Well, like all on just your beliefs and you're just reading people like that. And it's like, right, well, like you'd like to know, progress. like they're okay. You know, I know that on any given topic, there are people who are much smarter than me that disagree with me. Um, but there right. are also people that are smarter than me that agree with me. So I do like to I do like to hear the opinion of people that are smarter than me that disagree with me. Yeah, and, exactly. and usually what it comes down to is perspective um, and, and or whatever your actual needs, your material needs are or your emotional needs or whatever you're taught by your family. Right. Um, and then the challenge is finding that common ground, which is like, okay, like with the environment, you've got you've – got, people that have never hunted or fished but care about the future of the planet <laughs> and then you got people that hunt and fish and live in the country and the, yeah, that also just... care about that i don't know <laughs> well so you got to you're old enough that you pretty much missed social media while you were playing for the most part right or at least it hadn't really yeah, blown thankfully up. yeah so honestly. you didn't did you even have twitter when you were playing i had twitter okay. yeah so twitter kind of got rolling um man like 2000 Nine-ish. Yeah, I think because I think it was invented in 2007 and then got big in nine and ten or so. Yeah, so that's that's when I got. I think I got involved like beginning of 2010, maybe or like end of 2009, uh-huh. um, or beginning of 2000. Anyway, somewhere in the 2009 area, and I was like, uh, I'm just glad that it wasn't what it is now, back then, right? Because. I would just like start. I would just like say stupid stuff and like. You better go back. I like man. stupid stuff. I and I have gone back. I think I have <laughs> like, like a couple of years, a few years ago. Like I like go back. Like dang, what did I say back in two thousand nine? Like what was I <laughs> tweeting out that like if I tweeted out now, it would just be like just a disaster. We Not did like uh, was like crazy stuff. It was like. Why did I say that? Right, it's just dumb. I do every now and then. I do like a keyword search um, of like (laughs) Seth Payne and (laughs) just to be sure. Like, uh, did I ever quote a lyric or anything? I got to be absolutely positive that I've never done anything that. Maybe I was maybe I was drunk and somebody took my phone. Uh, Yeah, I think I'm in the clear. I did. So anybody listening, don't don't try to go. Back. It's, it's a waste. No, there's of your, nothing. There's nothing there. It's a waste of your time. I appreciate you coming in, man. Yeah, man. I, 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 your first ever just sole podcast interview. I feel yeah. like I've uh, I've introduced you to a whole new world. That was fun. Now and now, I'll, um, what I'll do is you'll start a podcast and I'll tell you what to do, 
and uh, and, and yeah, send someone you off talk in the right about direction. it. Or we, I can talk about those things. I don't come up with it on my and own. And give you this, <laughs> give you the structure and everything. Yeah. and then you can go do it. And I'll make it work. There yeah, we go. All sure. right. Okay. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad. I was good. Good to I just hire need you, a boss. Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Let me stop this before you uh, before you say anything more that might incriminate you. There you go. <laughs> of course, Owen Daniels has nothing incriminating to say about anybody or anything or himself uh, as well. And now we have on Sean Pendergast. Sean, a lot of you might not know this. Um, even people that listen to him on his show, uh, he was a, I want to say a three-time smack-off champion on Jim Rome's radio show. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with that, that's where uh, callers once a year call in and compete for having the best takes. Uh, it's, a, it's a really, really cool thing. I don't listen to Jim Rome that much anymore, but he's a legend. And that's how Sean got his start in the business. He was just a successful business dude doing business things, but he was really good at calling into sports radio shows. And then he started getting opportunities in Houston. Uh, I think with 1560 back in the day was his first full-time gig. And he just built himself up from there. So he has he has a degree from Notre Dame. We talk a little bit about Notre Dame this week, and was very successful in business. But his dream was to do sports radio, and he created a career for himself. He's putting three kids through college at good colleges with the money he's making in sports radio. It is possible. Don't don't let anybody tell you that the money in sports radio sucks. That is a bunch of sports radio hosts trying to uh, make themselves seem more relatable to everybody else. And uh, the fact of the matter is you can make pretty good coins. So if you kids actually want that as a dream, don't let anybody talk you out of it by telling you it's an unreasonable job or you're not going to make that much money. You can be very, very, very comfortable. And uh, look, you're, you're not going to, unless you're Colin Coward or somebody, you're not going to be blisteringly rich. But you can make a good living. So go after your dreams. And it's not all about the money anyway, but it's nice to make a good living doing something you love. That's exactly what Sean Pendergast is doing. Sean Pendergast, I have to tell you, as I was sitting here setting up, I was looking up at the screen, and they were doing something about Michigan versus Notre Dame earlier this season. Yeah. You're a Notre Dame grad. and The thought I had was, you've got three kids in college. Yes. None of them go to Notre Dame. Are you a little bit, I don't know if upset's the right word, do you wish that one of them had gone to Notre Dame, especially when Notre Dame is doing what they're doing football-wise? Uh, yeah, for sure. I, You know, the, the, uh, the boys – and I'm not speaking out of turn by saying this, I don't know that they would have gotten in. Uh -huh. I mean, they're smart. They're going to good schools. They're going to TCU and Baylor. But Notre Dame is way harder to get into now than when I went there. I don't know if is I would Is it really? Gone. Yeah. Yeah, it is. A lot harder than the Lou Holtz days for football it, it, players. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Right. That's right. They, they Lou got to work with a different <laughs> set of rules than the coaches since Lou. Lou was like, if, if all of a sudden Stanford was like, all right, listen, we'll, we'll let lots of guys in. Like, you get the benefit of the Stanford reputation yeah. plus lowering the academic standards. Yeah. That's uh, – dude, we could do a podcast with Lou Holtz stories someday. But uh, um, – uh, my daughter is probably the one who had the best chance to go because of sports, and she's smart. She um, she goes to Harvard now, right. so she's a smart kid. Um, but she she was an elite cross country runner, and she went and had a visit at Notre Dame. And she didn't like the coach there, and there was a little part of me that was like, ah, oh, I wish she had liked the coach. Yeah. That would have been really cool not to just see her go there, but 
but play sports there too. But well, I, and she'd be competing in the fall. You'd go up, you'd yeah. watch a cross country race, then go to a football go to a game. football game and fly back on Sunday morning for for NFL stuff. So, um, so yeah, a little bit. But they're uh, at the end of the day, they're all super happy where they are, and that's like I know it sounds cliche, but they're my kids. So like as long as they're happy where they are, that's all I. Care oh gosh, about. yeah, no, yeah. I mean, but it's okay every now and then. Yeah, yeah, no, little, a fourth I, kid, I do yeah. let my I do <laughs> I do that ain't happening. I do uh, I do let my mind wander sometimes during football season and think, ah, oh, we real especially a season like this where Notre Dame is really good. When I was there, so 1987 through 1990 were the football seasons that I was there. It was Lou Holtz's second year, was my freshman year. Tim Brown won the Heisman oh. my freshman year. They won the national championship my sophomore year. That was the Catholics versus convicts year. My junior year, they went 12-1 and one and finished number two in the country to Miami, who they lost to. That was a one loss. And then my senior year, I think they finished 9-3 and three that year, but they went to the Orange Bowl. That was the Orange Bowl where they called the clip on the Rocket Ishmael punt return, and, and Rocket Ishmael was second for the Heisman that year. So they, those were four really good years to be there. It's, they've been, as everybody knows, up and down since then. So years like this, I do think, like, man, that would be cool, especially when my sons are kind of experiencing kind of – wonky football years at the schools they're oh, at yeah. and they're huge football fans tcu and baylor you know tcu's 500 and baylor is just you know not what they were a few years ago so yeah a little bit it's kind of a good transition to what i want to ask you about before we get to your picks yeah. which by the way you were undefeated last week six so and oh any of our That's... listeners that were using sean's advice you're welcome <laughs> yeah this that was the deceptively fast karma baby <laughs> so uh since you mentioned a couple of big 12 football schools mm-hmm. This is the talk, obviously, is the increased offense in the NFL this year. And it's the NFL is becoming the Big 12. The average yard per attempt in the passing game is 7.4 yards per attempt, which is what college football had in 2015. So, like, football has already surpassed what college football was in 2015. It's becoming the Big 12 in a lot of respects. I'm having a hard time getting upset about it. I see various other guys like Lewis Reddick was was venting about how atrocious defenses are right now. Look, it's no secret why they're bad. Yeah. It's because offensive rules have gotten more and more lax and then safety rules have even exaggerated the situation. Yeah. And I'm I'm enjoying some of these high scoring games. Yeah, I am too. I I guess I um and I think some of it is you know, the concepts of college are now coming to the pros. Mm-hmm. Like the, these offensive coordinators are looking at what's working in college. They're looking at ways to get recoup their investment on these quarterbacks quicker and ways, you know, some ways to get the quarterbacks on the field quicker um, is to incorporate some of the things that a lot of them are doing at the, at the collegiate level. You got to take advantage of those four or five years that you've got these guys on rookie deals. So I think there's some of that. I, I don't, I'm going to watch football regardless, you know, like the same way I'm going to eat pizza regardless, you know, like even a good pizza, bad pizza. If there's pizza there on the counter, I'm going to sit and eat three or four slices of pizza. So it's not one of those things where it's ruining the experience for me or anything like that. I will say this, like I probably skew more towards what Lewis Riddick is saying in this and that I do like, I do like my games to have elements of both, you know, all three really offense, defense, and special teams. I do like thinking that there's, there is a certain futility when you're when you're watching a game like New England and Kansas City on Sunday night where it's just back and forth. It ends up 43-40. It turns into like a 1980s basketball game. Yeah, or a tennis match, like, right? right? Like you're waiting for the first team to break serve. Like yeah. that, literally that's what you're waiting for. Like the first team to to get off, to be able to get off the field on third down is like breaking serve in a tennis match. And I don't know – like I, I don't know how I feel about that. Like I like – I like that football before the 
the the scoring went up, and before the rules really started favoring the offense, you had to kind of earn your way. Um, you had to kind of earn your way into the end zone. It's a microcosm for what's going on in society today with nudity, Seth. Like back in the day, we had to earn our nudity. Yeah, yeah. Right? you had to. Have That's a, right. Yeah, you had you, to. You had to look through scrambled television boxes. Scrambled television boxes. You boxes. You had to have a buddy whose dad subscribed to Playboy yeah. and stored all the old issues like under the bed or Those something guys like were that. The best. Oh, you, the, the Sandersons. <laughs> the, the Sanderson twins. Their dad was awesome. <laughs> the Thompsons for me. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you'd, you'd go up there and you'd sit in a treehouse and look at Playboys with three or four of your buddies and wonder what was next it really, i tell you what in terms of helping your kids be popular that's so much more cost effective than a pool which was <laughs> <laughs> like like the sandersons uh there were two kids jake basta who passed away god rest your soul jake uh like he was he had a lot of visitors after school because he had a pool yeah but then the Sandersons, who lived like three doors down, I mean, their dad had a nudie collection dude, that, that was open access. Dude, 79 bucks a year. <laughs> yeah. And your kid is the most popular guy in, uh, in the class. So, yeah, like, you know, nowadays, he's, all they got to do is pull up their phone. And they, that's not even just nudity. Like, we had to work just to get, like, boobs and a hint of downstairs in Playboy. Like, nowadays, like, kids can just go watch hardcore porn on their phones. And I feel like, Seth, that is a microcosm of what's going on in the NFL. <laughs> Teams the, don't need to earn their way into the end zone anymore. The pornification of America has finally reached the NFL. And Roger Goodell, I'm sure, is just horrified Thank by you. it. He's actually happy about the offense. <laughs> this would be the other thing. And there will be a little bit of a local bias here since Sean and I are both based in Houston. Yeah. Um, and we're getting more and more listeners from outside of I, Houston. Which I was just going to ask you. That, yeah. sound, that sounds like a, a a non-local geographical uh, tease yeah. or a, you know or, or an olive branch. Well, wait until they get to our Jacksonville, Houston picks, and then uh, then people will see that we're completely divorced <laughs> from the city of Houston. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna have you listen to this real quick. This okay. is Bill Belichick talking about whether or not Khalil Mack is in the same category as Lawrence Taylor. Yeah, I'm not putting anybody in Lawrence Taylor's class. So you put everybody down below that. that that's. With a lot of respect with a lot of good players now, but we're talking about Lawrence. Yeah, I'm not putting anybody in Lawrence Taylor's class. So, so uh, I, you hear that, yeah, and immediately what you think is, wait a second, back in 2015, yeah, when J.J. Watt was on his way to his third defensive MVP of the year, yep. uh, an honor which he shares with Lawrence Taylor, yep. Bill Belichick said this: there are very few players I would put in the same conversation with Lawrence Taylor. I would put J.J. there. Uh, He's a dynamic player. He can ruin a game. He's a special player. He was the defensive MVP, and then he went on and on. And then uh, last year he actually said something similar, talked about him in the same conversation. Yeah. I feel like this is not anything Belichick would do on purpose, but almost like a subconscious retroactive snipe at J.J. Watt. Yeah, it, it would be. If that. If it's that, it's evil genius. I was <laughs> thinking about this with respect to J.J. because I remembered the quotes you were bringing up. Um, I wonder with Belichick, I wonder if – it's one of those things where Belichick is so hyper-focused on what's in front of him, okay, and what is, you know, just what the next thing is. Like, he strikes me as a guy who, it, like, doesn't look past the next week, like, unless absolutely necessary. So this is what this is what I wonder. I wonder if Belichick is making a, a, a categorization that's in the moment, that's right now, about – there is currently nobody who's in Lawrence Taylor's class. Ah. Now, now, you would say to yourself, well, J.J. Watt is kind of back to being J.J. Watt, right? Seven sacks. He's in the, he, he is just behind Khalil Mack in the odds for Defensive Player of the Year right now. But to the point of the hyper-focus of Belichick, 
the only impression that Belichick has of J.J. Watt, because he has no need to watch J.J. Watt film anymore unless they meet in the <laughs> in the postseason. <laughs> well, they uh, might, though. That's uh, <laughs> well, we'll they, get, Hey, yeah. we'll get to the showdown in the AFC South yeah. later in the episode. Yeah, yeah. But, but Belichick, essentially anything having to do with J.J. Watt in the now is cast off to the side because they met in week one. Yeah. And in that week one game, J.J. Watt – did not have a game where you would put him on the same plateau with a Lawrence Taylor. So it could be an in-the-moment evaluation in his head where he thinks currently there is no defensive player on the planet as good as Lawrence Taylor. I wonder, too, Bam. if – I wonder if when he first said that in 2015, there was a whole – you remember Mike Francesa, Shasha, however the hell you pronounce his name. Yeah. Mike Francesa went off on it, and yeah. uh, it spawned all kinds of debate. I felt it was good for Lawrence Taylor because, well, with this latest quote, too, people are – having this huge debate and, re- and remembering how awesome Lawrence Taylor it's, is. That's funny you bring that up. This this happened yesterday on the show. You know, we have Cecil Shorts in every Wednesday. Yeah. And um, during one of the breaks, I'm talking to Cecil. And Cecil, a six-year NFL guy who came into the league in 2011, you know, so 25 years after Lawrence Taylor's prime. But I just thought it was interesting. Cecil goes, how good was Lawrence Taylor? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I felt really old in the moment, man. Yeah. I'm thinking, wow. Uh, you know, I answer. I told him. I said he may be the best defensive player I've ever seen. It's, it's between him, Reggie White, and J.J. Watt as the three best defensive players that I've seen in my lifetime. I proceeded to explain how awesome Lawrence Taylor was on Tech Mobile to him, which he found very funny. But it was it was an eye opening thing to me to the point of what you're talking about the revived relevance of Lawrence Taylor. It, it, I mean, it is kind of out of sight, out of mind, these older players. You know, like Lawrence Taylor's probably pushing 60 now, you know. Um, so it probably was good for Lawrence Taylor. And people probably did go to YouTube and go look. And if you do go, go to YouTube and watch Lawrence Taylor, holy crap. That is one guy from back in the 80s whose game would translate today. You know what does a disservice to players from the 80s is that everybody wore oversized shoulder pads. Yes! And, and they yes! look – they end up looking – it's kind of like how baseball players now, you can't appreciate their physiques necessarily because they wear baggy jerseys. It's like pajamas. And then you see them in the clubhouse, and you're like, holy crap. Right. <laughs> These guys are right. bodybuilders. I, I, right. I was looking at Springer yesterday when he got on base, and the way his uniform fits him, he looks like he's got like a little Joe hanging yeah, yeah. over his belly. And yeah, I'm thinking, El, El Tube, you see him in a T-shirt, and he's a little bodybuilder. He's you know? shredded. And, but you just you wouldn't yeah. notice it from their jerseys. That's what 80s football players are, look like. And a lot of those guys, that was before they started testing. In yeah. the late 80s, those guys were – the offensive linemen were like 255, 265 and shredded. Yeah. Like, like veiny Mike Webster arms. That would be that would be great if there were some way to computer superimpose like 2018 pads like, onto, onto Deion Sanders. Like Michael Bennett. He wears those non-pads. Right, it looks right. like he's wearing a wife beater like, more than shoulder pads. Yeah. Like D, I, you watch – go back and watch like a Deion Sanders punt return from when he was at FSU. Yeah. He has the shoulder pads of a left tackle <laughs> on and he's doing that. Like how do guys catch the ball? Like how did you, how did you get your arms up in the air to catch right. a ball with those gigantic shoulder pads? Quarterbacks on? too, yeah. just to the range of motion. And I don't know why it took so long. Bruce Smith started wearing the smaller shoulder pads, yeah. and then it really caught on because yeah. it's just it's less to grab onto. They were focused on the wrong things. Like they were focused back in the seventies on having like the one bar face, like Joe Theismann flipping over to the one bar, like the punters and kickers. It's like no, bro, you need to work on those shoulder pads. <laughs> so yeah. let's uh, let's get to your NFL picks. Yeah, I agree with I think two of these. One I'm one I've got questions about okay. and it's this one you're taking the 49ers who are plus 11 versus yeah, the Rams love that pick uh, give me the uh, this is what I'm thinking 
this is the big one for me. The Rams are the Rams. The Rams have scored fewer than 33 points just once this season. Right. It was last week right. versus the Broncos. Right. But the big one for me is that the Broncos have the worst turnover differential in the league. The Rams hardly ever turn the ball over. They've turned the ball over six times. So I'm – I. Don't see any wild cards in this game. I don't see the 49ers all of a sudden flipping the script with a couple of turnovers and gaining an edge over the Rams. I I see this game going like you would expect the Rams offense to look. Yeah. here's Here's what I like. I like a few things about this game. One is just as a general rule for me in the NFL, when you have a double digit spread in a division game, I take the underdog just because those games are – you know that the, the, the intensity of that game is going to be more than just your average garden variety game. Like both teams are going to come to play. Um, the other things I like about this game – so 11 points is a lot of points, especially on the road. Uh-huh. If I'm not mistaken, the, the game is in San Francisco, if, I'm, if I am uh, correct about this. Let me just double check. And, uh, yeah, it's in San Francisco. So this is – Three straight road games for the Rams in three pretty difficult places to play, at least the previous two pretty difficult places to play. They were in Seattle two weeks ago. They lost that – well, they won that game, but Seattle covered. You remember that was one of the bets I gave out on the podcast. Last week, they they had to go to Denver to elevation and play. Denver got a backdoor cover in that game, but they covered. So on the scoreboard, it was a close game. Now you're playing a third straight road game. It's a division game. San Francisco's been a little friskier than I think people anticipated they would be without Jimmy Garoppolo. C.J. Beathard's been good, but I think more importantly, Kyle Shanahan has been good. I trust Kyle Shanahan. I trust Kyle Shanahan in a game where the opponent is going to be a little road-weary, maybe a lot road-weary coming off of a game in Denver, um, to scheme San Francisco into enough points to cover an 11-point spread. The other thing is this Rams defense has not been as good as people thought it would be. It's 17th in DVOA right now, so it's a by that standard, which I think is a – as statistics go, that's a pretty good one. They're a below-average defense. And I could see the 49ers, whose leading receivers are their fullback, their fullback and a tight end. Right. Um, still playing a grinded-out type of game where yeah. they limit the Rams' possessions. Especially so if they you get keep a lead. The, you keep the under, yeah. and the Rams get a healthy lead perhaps but aren't able to just rack it up. That's the way a great they. point. If you think it's going to play out that way, if you think it's going to be a game where the, the 49ers try to kind of shorten the game, then 11 points becomes even more valuable mm-hmm. in that game. Um, okay, so you've got Chiefs minus 5.5 versus the Bengals. Yeah. This is one I agree with, and, and this is one of the big factors in this game, and I am – eagerly looking forward to this. Vontez Perfect has this play last week where he he hits Antonio Brown with his forearm. And then according to Ben Roethlisberger said that after that play, Perfect pointed to Juju Smith-Schuster and declared, you're next. So this is Vontez Perfect being peak Vontez Perfect. And yet... Getting away with it. Yeah. No suspension, no punishment, no of, of note for this play. And we know this Avantez Perfect. Like, if you give him an inch, he'll take a cranium. Right. I think this is the <laughs> week that Avantez Perfect just flat out goes off, loses it, melts, melts down. down yeah. Has a complete meltdown. And then beyond that, too, look, Mahomes – Mahomes has turned the ball over twice in the last two games. He's starting to look a little bit more like people might have expected him yeah, to look. Yeah. But the Bengals are not a great pass defense, and I don't I don't think they can take advantage of that the way some other teams might. Game's in Kansas City, so the crowd is going to be hyped for that game. It's two straight Sunday night games for them, but this one's back at home. 
Um, they gave the Patriots a great game on Sunday night. I feel like the Chiefs came out of that game on Sunday night against the Patriots actually feeling pretty good about themselves. Yeah. The way they came back in the second half of that game. Um, you go into New England, they, you know, and I think you lose by three points. I think New England's a team that's kind of righted the ship. So I feel like in a weird way – that wasn't a you know kind of a soul crushing loss for the Chiefs. I think that's one of those losses where in the big picture they come away feeling pretty decent about their team. Now the defense is still a disaster for Kansas City. I think the biggest thing for me in this game, Seth, anytime I'm betting on a game involving the Bengals, like I did last week with the Steelers, the Steelers was one of my winners last week. Um, it's a lot of it circles back to Andy Dalton and. Andy Dalton on Sunday nights since coming into the NFL is 0-5 straight up and 1-4 against the spread. He's just not a very good quarterback when the lights are the brightest. His playoff record is something you can point to. Hell, the Texans can speak to that. The Texans have beaten the uh, the Bengals a couple of times in yeah. prime time with, with not very good teams. The Monday night game back in 2015, the Christmas Eve game when they clinched the division in 2016 when Tom Savage came in. So this is a bet. It's more betting against Andy Dalton and the, and the Bengals for me than it is betting on the Chiefs. You know, I saw a few different articles after the Patriots-Chiefs game where people said, well, look, everybody's in love with Pat Mahomes, but everybody can now see that Tom Brady is the real deal. Which, look, I get Nobody thought he was better than Tom Brady. <laughs> right. But you look at that game, I don't know, Pat, there's nothing to complain about with Pat Mahomes. None. Like, he, he scored at the end of the game. Could Andy Reid have done a better job keeping yeah. a little more like I, I don't know. There was a whole lot of time left still on the it clock. It was it was a lot yeah. like it was a lot like the Texans game in Week Three against the Patriots last year, right? Yeah. I mean, granted, Mahomes is six games in now. Back then, Deshaun was on, only on his second start, but it was one of those things where you felt like, man, Deshaun did everything he could to win that game. It's just you're on the road in New England. Your you know your coaches Cajone shrivel up a little bit, and then Tom you've Brady. Got, you've got one of the worst defenses in the league. Yeah, and then, then there's that too. And and Tom Brady comes back and makes plays. You know you don't capitalize on those on the situations that you had. So it was it reminded me a little bit of that game. So this is the big one where you and I lose our our, our friends locally. Yeah. Jags minus four and a half versus Texans. I would take the Jags here as well. There's a whole lot to feel bad about with the Texans right now. Yeah. Not to say that there isn't a whole lot to feel bad about with the Jaguars. The one thing that I would hesitate to put money on with this game is until I find out what's going on with Leonard Fournette. Because yeah. the, he's not practicing today, which is Thursday. Yep. Um, if Leonard Fournette plays, I, I know there was the theory for a while that, hey, maybe they're actually better when Leonard Fournette doesn't play. Well, maybe, Bortles had been statistically right, right. better. I mean, it, that was factual. Maybe, that, maybe that's true with some matchups. Yeah. I think with this Texans offensive line, the more the Jaguars can run play action effectively, that's what's going to help out. Their their offensive line versus uh, I'm mixing up I'm mixing up bad offensive lines here. Yeah, I yeah. get like honestly you I have, meant with I, the have I have bad offensive line <laughs> dyslexia. Look the, the 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 Jaguars are gonna be helped in pass protection if they can run play action yeah. effectively. It's like it's like when you run play action and you can just max protect and then take shots downfield. It's like feeding the village ogre uh, a lamb instead of giving him <laughs> instead of giving him your quarterback. Right. So I think that might actually be a pretty good strategy as long as Fournette's in the game. Do you think how much do you take away from the last two weeks with the Texans their ability to kind of cut the head off the snake of the the Cowboys? in the Bills these last two weeks with Ezekiel Elliott and LaShawn McCoy. I, I take that into account, um, but I just don't trust the Texans' offense at all. Yeah. Like, I just don't. I think it's a low-scoring game. I do, too. That ends up being won by a touchdown by the Jaguars. I have 20-10 to 10 as my prediction uh, on the game. So, I think you and I are kind of on the same page yeah. here. So, I – But I, I – the, the Texans are just – 
like fundamentally, we can say all we want about the the uh, you know the matchups in this game, how we think it's going to play out. There's a big enough sample space here with this team trailing back to the end of last year. Now, granted, a lot of these games were without Deshaun Watson, but it does speak to the coaching staff's ability or inability to get the Texans to play to a level that the betting public thinks they should be playing to. The Texans are 1-9 and nine against the spread in their last 10 games. 1-9? Going back to last season. Oh, yeah. my goodness. So they're – I, I don't know what the one – I'm trying to think of what the one win is in the last 10 games. I don't I don't know that they've – I they now they got a push in week one against the Patriots in some places, but in most places they didn't cover because the spread wound up at six and a half. I bought it up to seven, but they, they didn't cover against the Titans. They didn't cover against the Giants. They lost both of those games. Um, they they – I think they did cover – they covered against the Colts. That was that may be the lone cover in the last ten games. They covered against the Colts uh, in that Sunday game because that that spread was minus one plus one. It hovered around uh, Pickham, um, but then the last two games, obviously they've the Cowboys. I think the spread kicked off at three and a half. They won by three, and then the Bills game was a a betting disaster for some folks who backed the Texans last week. We've got to cut this short because I've got Owen Daniels coming in. All here in good, a buddy. Um, Let's go six can, and zero oh again and, this week. Sean T. Pendergast on Twitter. Follow him on Twitter. He'll send out the link to his Houston Press with all his picks for his college picks. And, Just uh, went up 20 minutes ago. It's okay, good. Yep. At, uh, at thehoustonpress.com. But follow him on Twitter, at Sean T. Pendergast. Thanks, buddy. Salute. So we thank Sean Pendergast once again. Uh, I'm, I feel like I'm getting a gambling education, and I'm getting enough of an education that I know I shouldn't be gambling. Uh, I've just – I've got a – I, I maxed out a credit card in college at a casino once, and uh, I learned a lot of lessons about myself, including that I can't trust myself gambling. It wasn't just a casino. It was a, a various card games here and there where I, I spent more than I should ever. I, uh, I, I basically used all of my meager life savings up to that point. So I've learned my lesson. I like watching from afar. I like watching people gamble, just like some of those people that weirdly enjoy just watching other people play video games. Although I guess that's more common now because kids are watching people stream online all the time. That's, boy, that's that's a whole other world that I still don't quite understand. I get it. I, I don't like that they call it eSports, but I understand the appeal to a certain degree, and I also get that I'm turning into an old who simply doesn't understand these things. Guy that's a little bit older than me but understands a lot of things is Michael Lombardi. His book, Gridiron Genius, is a very good read. I know I've mentioned a bunch of times, but you should read this book. You should get it for somebody for Christmas. Michael obviously put a lifetime of knowledge into it, and it's a lot of stories about Al Davis, Bill Parcells, Bill Belichick, on and on and on, all these visionaries and luminaries of the game and all the lessons they taught him, and he imparts onto you really good stuff. So let's start it off. This was my interview that I did on Mad Radio with Paul Gallant and Mike Meltzer, my co-hosts. So those are the other two voices you hear. You can follow them on Twitter, at Mike Meltzer, Meltzer with an S, and at Gallant says, both very bright young guys. Very good, very good follows on Twitter and uh, just entertaining listens as well. Here we go. We'll start off with some Bill O'Brien. I don't care what anyone says. Nobody. All I care about is the players in that locker room, the coaches upstairs, Mr. McNair, Cal McNair, their families, the support staff. I could care less about what anyone says. That's not my job. That's your job. My job is to coach the team to the best of my ability. And that's what I'm trying to do. 
Uh, we care about what Michael Lombardi thinks, and that's who joins us now. Uh, author of Gridiron Genius, a masterclass in winning championships and building dynasties in the NFL. It is an awesome book. Uh, I've read it through once, and I go back and bookmark it and highlight things all the time. Michael, uh, should we believe any football coach when he says that he doesn't care what the media says? You know, I, I, I do think there's probably some truth to it. I think that if you let that start to weigh into your thought process, it just it makes you think of things in different ways. I do think you need some people in the building, at least, to kind of give you a perspective, not saying it's from the fan base, but a perspective of what's going on, what you need to do. I think the teams that make the most progress during the seasons are the ones that are doing a really good job of self-scouting themselves during the year and fixing the problems, you know, after four weeks, after eight weeks, after 12 weeks trying to come up with the solutions as you can anticipate the problem so you know on one hand i'm not sure he's listening to the media but he better be listening to somebody that's got a view from thirty-five thousand feet uh you know one of the things one of the traits that you identify in your book is a head coach needing is the ability to admit when you're wrong the ability to to self-scout and look at your own weaknesses i feel like bill o'brien has that i feel like he has a lot of the traits that make a good head coach I'm just not convinced that he's necessarily a good offensive coordinator. What are you seeing out of that offense right now that needs to be fixed? Well, I think their offensive line just really, it's a breakdown of every area. They just can't ever get control of the line of scrimmage. And if you ever can't get control of the line of scrimmage, you never get control of the game. And I think that's really the problem that they have. They're never able to take over the game with just their ability to, they have to find ways to create scheme runs, trick things, and so there's going to be that high and low. And I think what happened in Buffalo last week when they, against Buffalo when they couldn't move the ball at all, I think that's a reflection of their offensive line not being able to come dominate. And it's a hard thing to do. Look, when your line's bad, you know, bad lines don't travel well. They're going into Jacksonville to play a good front. This is going to be a challenge for them. And so you, you try to mask the problems. You ever see – I'm a big Three Stooges fan. You ever see Curly in the boat? So there's this episode with Curly's in the boat, right? And there's the Stooges are with them in the boat, and Curly swings an axe and he hits a hole in the boat, right? And so now water's coming in their little boat. So Curly has this bright idea that he's going to drill a hole over next to the hole to let the water out from the first hole. And so it just <laughs> creates another problem. That's what happens when you have a bad offensive line. You're trying to cre- you're creating stuff. You're drill. You're opening up one hole, but you're opening up another hole, and that's truly what happens. And that, to me, is the best way to explain it. I think that second hole is having Ryan Griffin, the tight end, play fullback. That's your second <laughs> hole in this scenario. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess then the, the follow-up question would be, okay, Deshaun Watson. How much of it is the offensive line? How much of it is Deshaun Watson? Well, I, I, look, I think Deshaun Watson's there. It's to me, he's the stellar. He's the guy that he, they've got to build it around, right? And so quarterbacks are like baseball stadiums. You've got to design your team around what this guy does well. I think they could benefit a little bit from being under center to take some of the heat off of it, just to give the illusion that we're going to run some play-action pass, separate the de- defense for Deshaun. That's the defense's best friend. I mean, that's what Jared Goff's been so effective doing is because he's under center, and he's able to do it. Look, the New Orleans Saints have scored 180 points in just five games. Drew Brees is under center a lot. The threat of a run game from under center is a powerful tool. Two backs in the backfield is a powerful tool. And I think Deshaun Watson could benefit from a little bit more of that, running that style of offense. That's, you know, the Patriots have averaged 39 points the last three weeks since they've got some guys back. They're a two-back team when you break them down. They'll do two-back stuff. 
New Orleans is a two-back team. They'll do two-back stuff. When you watch New, when you watch the Rams, even though they're in 11 personnel all the time, they're essentially in two-backs because they're motioning guys across. So I think you've got to find a way to help him. But I think he's the answer. He's not the problem. Are we ever going to go back to an era where defense in the NFL takes a little bit more of a priority? And I ask this because I, I was looking at statistics for quarterbacks this week. Every single quarterback outside of four, we're talking 28, has a completion percentage of 60 or above, which is honestly just mind-boggling. Have we gone too far in the allowance of offense to do what they might with all these rules against defensive players? Look, I think the ratings prove that that you're not going to see defense again. 43 to 40, the ratings on the on the Sunday night game were through the roof. I mean, look, the Green Bay San Francisco game wasn't supposed to be a good game; was a great game. I think we're in an era, and I had this conversation about four years ago with Bill Parcells. I asked him this question. I said, "Is it over with for defense in the NFL? Are we done seeing dominant defenses?" And he was like, "Well, I, I'm not sure it's over, but I think you're going to have to play complementary defense." And I think that's where we are right now. We're in complementary defense status. Look. The Bears can be great all they want on defense, but the only way they're ever going to win a title is if their offense can go on the road and play well and score. That's what wins in the NFL. The Chiefs have given up 500 yards in three games this year. There's five and one. I mean, their defense is not very good. We all witnessed it Sunday night for the first time. People that never watched the Chiefs defense, they're bad. They're really bad. They didn't force a punt the whole day. However, they can play complimentary. They're fairly good on third down. I think that's the way you're going to have to play defense in the NFL. Defense matches your offense. Your offense has got to score early, play from in front. Your defense complements it. Michael, are you surprised the Jaguars are 3-3 three and three with the losses they've had against Tennessee and Dallas, the way that went down on Sunday? You know, I think we always build a perception of teams, okay? So we have this perception of Jacksonville. But when you break them down the last 22 games, they're 13-9. and nine. You know, they're 13-9 and nine the last 22 games in all games. So it isn't like they've just dominated the NFL and they've kind of stubbed their toe. This is kind of who they are. We remember them from last year's playoff time when they went up to Pittsburgh and kicked their butt, when they almost beat New England, and we have this perception. Now what's happened is they've only turned the ball over five times all year. Their defense is not turning the ball over. And we all know, look, we can talk about Blake Bortles all we want, okay? And the Jacksonville Jaguars can convince themselves he's their franchise. But Blake Bortles is who he is. I mean, his numbers this year are fairly in line to what his numbers are throughout his career. He's going to always be an 80% quarter QBR rating in the NFL. He's always going to have a, a, a high interception percentage. He's always going to not be very accurate down the field. This is who the Jacksonville Jaguars are. What's happened so far is they haven't turned the ball over with defense they haven't been able to play those kind of games and like i said to begin this they're 13 and 9 in, in the last 22 games that's not a dominant team speaking with michael lombardi michael when you talk about the jaguars and and the situation they have with blake bortles and yet they gave him that new contract last year and then i think about the new york giants and the way they seemingly are deluding themselves about the status of eli manning how as an organization do you prevent that i mean there's just is it is the desperation for a quarterback just so great that you talk yourself into a lot of compromises? Look, look I, I wrote it in the book. It's very clear. The, the hardest thing to do in any sport, whether you're in basketball, whether you're in hockey, your own players, we fall in love with players. The Giants, look, we're, they're going to put Eli Manning's name up on the ring of honor, right? Will he go in the Hall of Fame? I don't know. I'm sure he probably will. You know, he's won two Super Bowls. His numbers aren't Hall of Fame numbers outside of that, but he's won two Super Bowls. You know, he deserves all the respect and integrity you can give him. However, he's playing horrible. 
He hasn't played well. They've won 32 games in the last five years. There's a reason for that, right? It's this joke, right? When you have a franchise quarterback, and I mean a franchise quarterback, everything else kind of falls into place. Your team can be bad. We watched Aaron Rodgers on Monday night. He's a franchise quarterback. He led his team to win. Their defense wasn't very good. They've got some problems with receivers. But franchise quarterbacks win. When franchise quarterbacks don't win, you know what that means? You don't have a franchise quarterback. You don't have one. And I think it's pretty clear at the Giants. They're just lying to themselves. They're lying to themselves. It's amazing how the media doesn't get on the Jacksonville Jaguars for not drafting Patrick Mahomes, yes. for not drafting Deshaun Watson. I mean, it's phenomenal. Look, I love Leonard Fournette. The Giants are catching a bunch of crap for drafting Barkley over Darnold, which they deserve. But how come Jacksonville's not catching crap for drafting Mahomes for not drafting Mahomes over Fournette? Right, and, and, and in his last year's draft as well with uh, Lamar Jackson, too. But let's see Fournette behind Eric Flowers. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The, the, the crazy thing is, how there are a lot of teams that are also lying to themselves about quarterback. I, I feel like Tennessee might be with Marcus Mariota. I feel like you could say the same thing about Miami and, and Ryan Tannehill. So what does actually inspire the change outside of injuries like we saw back in 01 with Bledsoe and Brady? You just got to be, look, you got to sit there and say, look, if we have a franchise quarterback and we're not winning. When I was in Oakland, we had Kerry Collins, and I love Kerry Collins. He was a good player. He's not a great player. He had a 102 quarterback rating, the best in his career. We were 0-3. You know what that tells me? We're not good enough. Like, we're not good enough. Like, he can't carry us. He's He's playing way above his level, and we lost three games. So that means we're not any good. You've got to be honest with yourself. There's indicators. You know, I write about it in the book. When you're in the NFL, you're in the veterinarian business because the patient never talks to you. You must diagnose through systems, checks, and balances. It's just like when your dog goes to the vet. He doesn't come out and say, you know, i got a bellyache today. No. <laughs> the, vet, the vet figures it out, right? Same thing with football teams. You've got to figure it out. And the only way you can figure it out is to be brutally honest with yourself. And it doesn't happen in the NFL. Look, if the Dolphins think Ryan Tannehill's the star quarterback, they're a joke. If the Denver Broncos think Case Keenum's their answer, they're lying to themselves. When John Elway drove home after Mahomes beat him, and then when he just got beat again at home by Jared Goff, he's got to say to himself, look, I'm, I'm in this fight. I, I have a pistol, and everybody else has got a gun. Like, everybody else has got a, a machine gun. I can't win. i got to figure this out. Michael, and unless you have that conversation, you're never going to do it. What's what's the next couple of years of this John Gruden thing going to look like? Yeah, that's a great question because John Gruden has got two hats he's wearing. He's wearing his GM hat and he's wearing his head coach hat. And I know the hats he's wearing, and I know him really well. He's not a great talent evaluator. Okay, let's just put that out there. He's he struggles in that area. I think if you just look at his if you look at the at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers drafts when he was down there. Now he can say he wasn't running them. Bruce Allen was running them. I mean that's just the finger point. You know who did it, who done it, that kind of thing. So you got to look at that, and then you got to look at what he's done with this team when he's come in there. He's made it old, made it slow. I mean read the quotes after they signed Derek Johnson. Everybody, I was laughing after that. I mean. Derek Johnson's going to go on the ring of fame in Kansas City. He's a great player, but he was done. He was done when they signed him. You read the quotes after they signed him. You know, so I think it's a challenge. I think John's going to have to prove he's got great skills. I think what John should do is the same thing Pete Carroll did when he went to Seattle. Find somebody he's really tight with that he trusts and let that guy do it. Not that the guy's going to take any thunder away from John. Not that the guy's going to steal the spotlight from John, but the guy's going to find players. 
and that's going to be the key for the Raiders. Great stuff, as always. Michael Lombardi, buy his book. I'm telling you, it's a great read. It'd be a great Christmas present for somebody in your life that loves football. Gridiron Genius, a master class in winning championships and building dynasties in the NFL. Michael, have a great week. We appreciate it, man. Thanks, guys. There's Michael Lombardi from The Athletic, from The Ringer. Check out his book as well. And on tomorrow's show, right on Nine Away, we'll bring back the best of what uh, Michael Lombardi had to say. I like the uh, vet analogy. I think he's probably made that before. I don't think on our show, but probably on podcasts. But I like it. Basically, you're dealing with patients who are not going to tell you what's wrong yeah. with them. You know, the actual medical issues in the NFL are like that, too. Until until guys are done with their career and they're trying to get their disability benefits. And then they, then they tell you, know, you exactly what's wrong. What's unless really going on. Seth, unless you're clown Seth Payne when he went to his disability. And, like, I went back into football player mode. And I was like, nope, feels good. Everything's great. Everything's good. Nope. <laughs> I, I can touch my toes. Hell yeah. Look at this. You can touch your toes. I know. I I've yeah, well, that. What am I going to lie? You're good at that. Know, yeah. Coming up I'm next. I'm in perfect health. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.